90% of all scientists that have ever been alive are alive today. That's a lot of information, but don't panic. It's not an exact science. Hey, Shannon, how are you? Oh, surviving. Doing good. <laughs> Excellent. You know, I say that because, you know, as I've talked about many times, I only taught one class last semester because I thought I was going to be out in the field doing all this stuff, and it didn't happen, and now it's happening this semester, and I have three classes, and today is like all three classes. One of them is a once-a-week class, so it's like two and a half hours long, so it's been a long day. <laughs> I agree. Uh, it's been a long day, too. My day started with a uh, unscheduled static IP rollover from our internet service provider taking our servers down and oh. me rolling out of here at a cool 5 a.m. Oh, that's fun. <laughs> it was mm. great. Uh, I was going to ask you, is this the kind of thing that happens? It seemed like there was a... A lot of people on my side of town yesterday that lost their ability to connect to the internet. I went to three different businesses that all said cash only. Is that something that like, is that like an Amazon web service or something that went down? Could be that. Could just be the internet service provider for that area. Just like that sometimes local. our blog goes out. Yeah. That was, um, I thought it was going to be much more traumatic than it was, but. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was very interesting. I do. But well, when I when I <laughs> right, <laughs> yeah, it's amazing how much runs on the internet. Um, yeah. <laughs> but when I did get some internet back, uh, I had the occasion to go back into Slack because I've been pretty bad. We've been super busy, and I haven't been in Slack in quite a, some time. Mm-hmm. Even though we have a company Slack, we're <laughs> small enough that we just yell yeah. across the office. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so went in there and saw that there are some comments from September, November. <laughs> it's only December, right? So why do you? What do you mean? <laughs> right. So so uh, Ben von Handorf said, "Longtime listener, finally getting around to joining Slack." Hi, Ben. Me too. Um. Okay. So was enjoying episode 301 about us discussing preparing equipment for the field. He said his sister actually works for the U.S. Antarctic program in solid waste, and he's never um, ceases to be amazed how complicated that the whole Antarctic program is just to allow science to happen. I mean, that's not even science happening right there, right? (laughs) Well, yeah, I mean, this is all the support stuff that the scientists don't even have to think about, but it's Uh entire, entire... groups of people making it happen yeah that's impressive that's cool and yeah and then eva actually jogged my memory on a guest that we want to have on Uh, she said she's a newcomer to the podcast and has wondered if we've already done the paper the dunes on planet tatooine observation (laughs) of barchan dune migration at the star wars film set in tunisia by ralph lorenz we definitely did that. That in was my paper. Forty-seven. <laughs> That's when I was on like a crazy Dune kick. <laughs> Not like Dune the movie, just sand dunes in general. I remember I, <laughs> I had like, I don't know, four lectures and two classes about sand dunes. I get real excited about them for some reason. That 
that time, and I got real excited when I found that Barkan Dune paper. <laughs> yeah, so this is from December of 2015 when we last talked about this paper. Oh my gosh. <laughs> That's impressive. A little bit of time. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, uh, yes, we actually want to have uh, Dr. Lorenz on the show with us. And uh, your, your Slack comment has inspired me to go ahead and try to get that set up. So Excellent. thanks for that. Great. Man, I'll have to get back in there, too. It's been a little while since I've, since I've been in the Slack. All these online classes really, I won't say motivated me, but like forced me to spend a lot of time in Slack. And I think I'm on, you know, I'm on the other side of the online stuff. So I'm very anti-online right now, but. I'll get back in there too. We won't let comments languish for three or four months anymore. <laughs> right. Well, the problem with me, especially, is I get home and I've been doing screen time all day, so I don't <laughs> do anymore. Yes. Yeah. That's what I. Yeah. That's what I mean. Like it's mm-hmm. teaching on it. Slack has its place, but man, I'm ready to turn that off. <laughs> well, right. Not all of it off. There's still Mario Kart, but. <laughs> <laughs> Right. <laughs> oh, oh yeah. we got a whole new tv which ended up resulting in my dog eating my retainers but that's another story for another <laughs> time <laughs> that's great i mean is this from like now now or is this from high school this story <laughs> uh, this is from yesterday <laughs> okay great gotcha and me explaining it to a hysterically laughing dental assistant this morning oh my gosh i had dental surgery yesterday weird very (laughs) what are we talking about today (laughs) yeah so you know pivot straight into today's topic which you suggested which are talking about earthquake precursors okay so i was reading this completely fiction book and it was they were in a classroom in the fiction book and the guy was talking about precursors to earthquakes and he talked about temperature drops and he said in there that the temperature dropped six degrees before the san francisco the great earthquake when was that 1906 Um, 1906 yeah yeah and i thought is that a real thing and of course google answered my question sort of and earthquake weather was a thing and then i immediately sent you an email and said we're talking about this and i meant you're talking about it since you're the earthquake guy (laughs) right (laughs) but is that that's weird right so i love like one of my favorite shows as you'll remember was the sort of the little weather wives tales and i thought we should do one about earthquakes i know you know i have talked about this off the podcast quite a bit but that temperature one i had never heard before yeah because there are a huge number of things that people associate with earthquake precursors that are are not uh or are of questionable (laughs) nature (laughs) You you hear people talking about their dog behaved oddly so I have my own story about that too, and we can wait if you want, or I can tell it now. <laughs> uh, yeah, so let's get there, uh, <laughs> because there are a lot of things that are thought to be. Some of them are things that you require an instrument to observe. 
some of them are things that you just see with your eyes, like your dog. Right. Mm-hmm. Yes. Great. And I, I'm going to go out on a limb and say thus far, nobody has conclusively proven significant precursory behavior. Okay. Now, sure, P waves travel faster than S waves, and we do have systems that detect P wave arrival and can do things like shut off gas mains, stop subway trains, that sort of thing. Right. Because right. you get, like, seconds. You know, 10, maybe 20. Mm-hmm. But that's... That's science. That's oh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, think I, I think I titled... Didn't I title my email to you, like, non-waveform earthquake precursors <laughs> or something like that? Right, which is great because there's an important distinction. Mm-hmm. Now, the downside to this is there is a pretty significant discouragement of even talking about these in the literature. Okay. If you if you want to talk about, well, what if there are any of these precursory things, you're pretty much labeled a crackpot instantly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Which I will is... say seismologists aren't always the most open-minded group of people, <laughs> historically. I mean, it's, it's too bad, because how many times can we talk about science that was thought of as crackpot, <clears throat> Alfred Wegener and plate tectonics, and then later right, and, prove that it's real? <laughs> and I said historically, because I do think this is changing some. Yes. Mm-hmm. But still, so, you know, part of my PhD, I looked at electrical phenomena around earthquakes Mm -hmm. in the lab. And that was about as close as I could get to anything even kind of like this without people going, you should really look at other stuff. (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome (laughs) and exciting. (laughs) Yeah, so earthquake weather was a new one for me. Oh, okay. Uh, now, there, there is, if you just search earthquake weather, the first thing that comes up is a statement from the USGS. It says there is no such thing as earthquake weather. This is a very extensive website about no such thing as earthquake weather, though. <laughs> but they're mainly focused on some people saying, like, well, earthquakes primarily occur in the spring or after a big rain. I thought that was weird. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Not was there some kind of precursory weather change? Mm-hmm. Now, yeah. did the change cause the earthquake? Did the earthquake cause the change? We're not even going to get into that. Right. Um, there is this idea that temperature can be affected by these large ion movements that are as a result of stressing of the rock prior to earthquakes. Okay. I'm, I'm going to say dubious on that one. So, when it talked about the temperature drop before the San Francisco earthquake, I mean, because if you're going to attribute it to ions moving, I wouldn't think that that would be occurring hours before an earthquake rupture, right? Yeah, so that's, that's, that's my main problem with a lot of these, is the mechanism might be valid. Uh-huh. But the mechanism happens generally co-seismically. Okay. 
So there is a rapid stress change during the earthquake. And if we believe some kind of physical mechanism for that to cause ion movement, great. Right. But is the stress going to... No, the stress has been building for, you know, hundreds, tens, thousands, however many years. Slowly. I, I don't... I wouldn't expect to see suddenly a sharp rise in loading rate. Mm-hmm. Right. Certainly not enough to cause a lot of these observations. That makes sense. And, you know, co-seismic events are pointless and trying to use as a <laughs> an indicator, a precursor indicator. <laughs> well, sort of. So, and this is where what I argued some of my PhD work on of, let's say there's an electrical signal that is produced co-seismically. You okay. think the PS wave lead time is nice? Mm, okay. Like, yeah, it doesn't go the speed of light in rock, but it goes pretty darn fast. It goes way faster than an S wave. Right. Mm-hmm. You might take that 10 seconds of lead time and turn it into 30 or 60. Okay. Which is significant. Which is significant. I mean, 60 seconds. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Now, 60 was extreme. It was probably more like doubling, but still, that's. Even. Yeah. 20 seconds yeah. versus 10. Yeah. That's getting outside versus not. Exactly. So, I mean, because you want to run outside during an earthquake, right? (laughs) Or is that a tornado? (laughs) I get confused. (laughs) Remember, opinions, findings, conclusions are not recommendations. (laughs) Ah, Exactly. Okay. All right. So there could be some, some usefulness in that. I mean, there's so much talk about animal behavior but we've done some fun papers on this too actually yeah i don't know if we've done it as a fun paper but the usgs has a red book on it where they oh do they (laughs) chart of snakes oh yeah it's got this chart it's got this table with like little pictures of snakes and sheep (gasps) and horses in it and how many hours before they were behaving oddly oh that's funny didn't we do one on sheep that were like in i don't remember we did something with we did some weird sheet paper that having to do with earthquakes, but I digress. We've done a lot of weird papers, so. Right. <laughs> so I get that. And I mean, and that's, so when we had the big earthquake here, I will say that, it, not the big one, because I think that one is at night, but one of the precursors to the big Prague earthquake, the Wilzetta Fault rupture, um, my dogs did go crazy for quite some time. Not quite some time. Ten minutes before we had a pretty good foreshock. But also, you know, dogs go crazy, so. And that's the one that was, like, before lunch, right? Yeah. Yeah, it was in the morning. Yeah. Yeah, I want to say it was, like, ten minutes. So I was getting ready to go to class. I was getting ready to pull out of my apartment. Okay, yeah, because I was home with my son was sick, and so I was home, and the dogs, you know, were acting really weird. Now, so, we're going to do a little experiment here. (laughs) So, tell me the story of that earthquake, as you would tell somebody, like, hey, you won't, before this earthquake, like you just said, I was home with my son... Okay, so tell me the whole story from the beginning, how you would tell somebody at uh, 
at your local bar. Okay. Um, well, so I was home because my son was sick, and I have my house is unusual in Oklahoma because it's a split level, so like our bottom level is half underground. And I remember we were, he was laying in bed and the dogs were going crazy and I was getting up to look outside and they were kind of running around in circles going crazy, which they're not, they were old. It's not something they usually did. And I was like, that's really weird. And I walked around, did my thing, got my coffee, walked back into the bedroom and the dogs hushed up and I went to look out the window. And when I went to the window, everything started shaking pretty good. And so, you know, like, I grabbed him when we ran outside and all that jazz. And by the time I got out there, it was over. Um, I don't remember how big that one was for something. Um, Picture fell off the wall. Dogs had been going crazy. And I remember specifically thinking, that's weird that they're running around in circles. They don't usually do that. Okay. So. Excellent. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> because there's this thing in psychology called a flashbulb memory. Ooh, okay. Okay, so this is something that as scientists that deal with events that are surprising, shocking, cataclysmic, mm-hmm. we have to deal with. Right. So tornadoes, earthquakes. Okay, so I'm going to read the definition of flashbulb memory. A flashbulb memory is a vivid, long-lasting memory for the circumstances surrounding the reception of news about a surprising or shocking event. Flashbulb memories have six characteristic features, and you had all of them in this order. (laughs) One, place. Two, ongoing activity. Three, informant. (laughs) Four, own effect. Five, Other effect. Six, aftermath. How cool. We did not (laughs) pre-discuss this. (laughs) (laughs) We did not. I I sprung this on you totally by surprise because I didn't want you to know anything about it. Wow. Okay. That is very interesting. Hmm. I don't know if I'm mad that I conformed or didn't, but we'll get to that in the fun paper. (laughs) Right. So these are what psychologists call autobiographical memories. Okay, yeah. Mm-hmm. And they have, they can be accurate. Oftentimes they're not because they're interspersed with emotion and personal importance. Uh-huh, yeah. The most interesting thing is you would not remember. So that was in, what, 2011? yeah. 11 years later, you would not remember that one day your dogs were running in circles if there hadn't been an earthquake. No, you're absolutely right. Mm -hmm. Which made me feel silly talking about it, but yeah. Uh Uh-huh. Now, does that make the observation invalid? Absolutely not. Mm Mm-hmm. But (laughs) it's really hard to say, but how many other days did they run in circles, right? Right, exactly. Over puts over importance on that observation. And this is me being, you know, the super pessimistic observer. Right. Um, but I love it when psychology works out like, <laughs> like you hit the definition to a T. Man, I did. I can't believe that. <laughs> oh, very disappointed. 
<laughs> it's so, still yeah, that's weird. <laughs> right. No, you know, and I've got them too, but that's where a lot of these things come from. Like people talking about what happened for a tornado. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so anytime somebody's telling you a memory of something like this, listen, and you'll almost always hear these six steps. Wow. It's like the stages of grief. Like, you're going to go through it. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because it always starts with, you know, I was here. I mean, okay, ask somebody of the appropriate age what they were doing when they heard JFK was shot, and they will go through this exact six-frame storyline. Oh, yeah. What what I was doing when 9-11 happened. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Exactly right. Okay, so... (laughs) Don't mess with my mind like that. (laughs) So now we'll get back to earthquake prediction. So the animals, there's been a lot of studies that have had lots of various null or vague conclusions. Uh The best idea is that before the earthquake happened, there were lots of small events that the animals could either feel or they could sense things like gas coming out of the ground from cracking from these small events. Okay. Yeah. I don't have a problem with that theory. Ten minutes before an event of that size, was there some precursory events that were smaller than you could feel? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm sure there were. And animals do have some more sensitivity to things like this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, makes sense. Especially, you know, like lower hearing ranges. Right. right. Also, they're in much more stable contact with the ground than you know. They're not trying to balance. Hmm. That's an interesting thing to say. I mean, I guess it depends on what animal you're talking about, right? <laughs> But fair. Um, but generally farm animals, right? And I did find this paper. Your that, ostrich farm might not be exactly, such a good indicator. But. Exactly. Or, well, no, I was going to say lizards, but no, they're definitely in better contact. Um, this paper that we did was called Potential Short-Term Earthquake Forecasting by Farm Animal Monitoring. Hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. And it yeah. was in episode 260. Six, if anyone wanted to go back and listen to that, um, because I remember it was about sheep, and it was something interesting about that. But um, that's a that's a interesting point. The all four paws on the ground. Hmm. Yeah. So I actually don't have a problem with saying there might be two something animal behavior. Mm-hmm. I do have a problem with saying it's going to be forecast useful. Right. Right. Haven't the Chinese done a lot of animal forecasting of earthquake research? Yes, they have. Yeah. I mean, because obviously very tectonically active over there, lots of, lots of death and destruction could occur. So if you got a lot of farm animals, you might as well use them for other things too, right? Right. And, you know, not to say that if you had some kind of empirical system, but also animals are affected by a lot of other things than earthquakes, other environmental factors, approaching storms, predators, yada, yada, yada. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Hmm. Okay. Okay, so there's animals. Uh, There are some physical mechanisms, you know, like VPVS, which we said, okay, that's that's real. There are some things that are coming out of the lab, like changes in the VP to VS ratio and this weird dilatancy behavior in rock. 
that sure are probably precursors. We can detect them in the lab. I don't think we're quite there in being able to detect them in the wild yet. We might be able to get there one day, but there are some interesting mechanisms happening there. Hmm. Um, So like, you know, as you, as you're stressing a rock and it's getting close to breaking, uh, that you actually open up pore space in it. Oh, okay. Yeah. Which is going to modify the VPVS ratio. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there have been some interesting papers on that. Again, I don't have a problem with the theory. Haven't reliably seen it in the real world yet. All right. Makes sense. I now, mean, one that I've... Uh, go ahead. Well, I mean, even if you could see it, like... What kind of spatial, you know, network would you have to have to be able to even use that? Yeah, it'd be pretty dense. Yeah, (laughs) right? Mm -hmm. Okay. So, and then one that I've heard a lot about is radon. Oh, yes. Okay. Are these earthquake lights? Are we going to talk about earthquake lights? We're going to talk about earthquake lights, but these are not earthquake lights. Oh, okay. All right. Something else. Go ahead. (laughs) So the idea is due to the precursory events or stress or pre-event cracking, uh, you get uranium's everywhere in low quantity, and radon gas is a decay product of uranium. So the idea is most rocks have some radon gas in them. And as this cracking occurs, the radon gas gets released at the surface. And we like that because radon is radioactive. So it's super easy to detect, even in very low quantity. Okay. Yeah. And, I mean, radon gas is bad, right? Radon gas is bad. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, there's some idea that animals might be able to detect this. Hmm. Okay. And so maybe the increase in radon gas sets them off. Right. Now, there have been, again, some interesting observations of radon levels for earthquakes. There's also been a lot of cases where radon spiked and nothing happened. And there's been even more cases where something happened and there was no radon spike. Hmm. So reliable that's the problem with all of these is the natural system is so highly variable getting any of these to be a reliable mechanism yeah yeah. for many locations is probably just not going to happen and having all of them set up is probably too much (laughs) oh yeah Mm -hmm. um you know i recently looked at uh, some some research that was dealing with these these very rare events and it wasn't, can't go too much into the detail, of course, but it wasn't, it wasn't specifically regarding this. But it was a very similar example of you are looking for correlation between uh, a rare event and an event that has many causes. Right. Gotcha. Sometimes they correlate, sometimes they don't, and you can't tell if that causation is there or not. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. Yeah. That's frustrating. <laughs> oh, it is. Uh, very much so. And, you know, radon, like I said, it's, it's easy to detect. It's relatively cheap to monitor for. Um, I would be a big fan 
of putting lots of radon detectors out and seeing what we can learn about this from like an IoT network? I mean, there's probably something interesting to be said about that no matter what, even if it wasn't a precursor to earthquakes, just the movement of radon gas. It's very weird to me. Yeah, well, and you know, we, we've got a friend of the show that maybe we need to have back on uh, that was working in air quality monitoring, and they found like some funny readings that turned out to be a landfill nearby some of these dense sensor networks they populated uh, that would, you know, belch methane on hot days. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Hmm. And gross. Yeah. <laughs> hmm. Okay. That makes sense. But All right, then we come so to your favorite. Earthquake lights. No. Yeah. So magnetism. <laughs> electromagnetic anomalies. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All of your favorites. Magnetism, earthquake lights. <laughs> I remember talking to you about this like ages and ages and ages ago because this is weird stuff. My parents used to live on the outskirts of the Dismal Swamp in North Carolina. And my mom would talk about like swamp gas lights and all this stuff. And it's always like been such a weird phenomenon to me. So, Yeah. And it's another one that the psychologists have stepped in a lot on (laughs) over the years. Mm -hmm. Though I don't buy as much of it here. Um, There was a long time where if you said that you saw the sky light up during an earthquake, you just get locked away. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then psychologist said, actually, it's because your body is not used to that acceleration and that shaking. And it is a physio-psychological effect that you see these lights. Hmm. Well, okay. guess what? We can strap people to shake tables. Yeah. So that that one didn't pan out so well. Did you see the lights now? Shake them harder, I guess. <laughs> How many earthquake lights do you see? There are four. <laughs> no, 16. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So it's an interesting concept. But then in Japan in the 60s, somebody got them on film. Ha ha. I mean, it's really shaky film, right? <laughs> well, it's stills. Oh, okay, great. It, black and white stills, nonetheless. Oh yes, okay. I know. But this is er- these. I this is that famous in this like the late sixties. This famous photo that's the earthquake light photo, right? Yeah. So, okay. late night earthquake looks like sunset. Yeah, that's a big light. In- interesting. Mm. So, uh, I, I can tell you from going to conferences and doing anything vaguely adjacent to <laughs> electromagnetic phenomena around earthquakes, several people are going to come and be like, so have you found earthquake lights yet? <laughs> yep. <laughs> and not saying that in a genuinely interested way, saying that in a... Crackpot way. <laughs> yes. Mm-hmm. And then there's going to be one or two people that are genuinely scientifically curious and they're like, what did you find? Like, I am open to new information, though I am skeptical. And I appreciate that. Yes. Like a good scientist, and, right? Right. And then there's always one or two people that come up, and they want to make sure you put your tinfoil hat on, too, 
so they can't hear you. <laughs> uh. <clears throat> so there's a lot that goes on surrounding <laughs> this set of precursors. Uh, I mean, but there's a lot of, I mean, there's a lot of pictures of Loch Ness Monster too, I guess, but there's a lot of pictures of these earthquake lights now. And there's a lot of well-documented by multiple unrelated observers instances of these, mm -hmm. including in Italy. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I just, I was obviously Googling earthquake lights earlier today. And I, there's a National Geographic article about it that's like a legit one. It talks about a whole bunch in Mexico City... Uh, or in Mexico in 2017, that a whole bunch yeah. of earthquake light pictures got captured then. And it compares it to ball lightning just because it's rare, which, you know, I love ball lightning too, so. Yeah, so ball lightning was also going to be my comparison. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> of, yeah, this is... This is something that also people thought was crazy until, wow, we observed it. Now we can create it in the lab. We've talked to people that can create it in the lab on this exactly. show. Exactly. That, that was a great show. I had that ball lightning show was super cool. I actually refer back to it a lot. Because, I mean, it's so weird. You think you have an idea of what stuff does, you know? And then weird things like this happen. Like, you think you have an idea about what an earthquake should look like, and then lightning occurs around an earthquake. <laughs> so, you know. <laughs> right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, what is it? I mean, good question. <laughs> uh, one of the problems that everybody cites is, well, okay, the upper crust is wet, so how does it not short out? Okay. It's a great question. Mm -hmm. uh, I can also tell you, though, that there have been pseudotaculites that your people, magnetic people, have studied <laughs> and found very strong along fault magnetic fields that indicate large currents, like thousands of amps, had to be flowing. Right. Which is terrifying. Right. So we know that charge is generated. Is it piezoelectric, you know, like squeezing quartz crystals? Mm -hmm. They're observed a lot of places where there's not a lot of quartz. And piezoelectricity, it just doesn't, the math just doesn't work for it to be the sole contributor. Right, not that big. Okay. Okay. Uh, let's see, there's this rubbing, so the, the triboelectric charging like rubbing a balloon against your hair mm -hmm. okay that's co-seismic maybe uh fracturing minerals along certain phases exposes charge like a charged plane okay mm -hmm. sure um there's this idea which so when i did this for uh the first chapter of my phd i, I created a little bit of earthquakes in the lab, like magnitude minus two and a half, as has been done forever. <laughs> it's so cute. <laughs> right. On little glass beads, mm -hmm. which aren't rock. They're glass beads. They're pieces of ground up car windshield. <laughs> awesome. And I pointed a 
electrostatic voltmeter at the at the fault. Yeah, you bet. I saw something. And I tried my best to rule out what it was. Uh, I put it in human environments. I tried different materials. Uh, I even damaged some of the beads, their crystalline structure, by exposing them to radiation in a nuclear reactor. Mm. And the only... Uh, basically, I was trying to rule out methods, and I basically ruled out almost everything. Uh, there's this idea out there of charge hole migration, so like a semiconductor type thing. Uh, N and P junctions and all this fun stuff that if you're an electrical engineer, you're like, oh yeah. <laughs> uh, that has not gained too much wide acceptance because of some of the ways it's been presented. Okay. I'm not saying it is the method, and I'm not saying it's not the method. I'm saying it's one of the ones that we couldn't go, definitely not it. Okay. Uh, we did not prove that any of these things were what could cause earthquake lights. We only disproved a few. So was it an incredibly useful paper? Probably not. <gasps> but... The goal was to publish real laboratory impartial observations of electric phenomena during and around an earthquake. I did not see precursory events. Hmm. I saw co-seismic events. Mm -hmm. It's so... It's not frustrating, but it's so interesting that, like, we need an answer to this question. Right. Like, right. do these when... exist? Yeah. Like, what causes them? I don't know. I don't and know it... that we will know, and it's going to be a combination of things. Right. The combo of all those different things probably is unique to some locations or some specific earthquake, which is even more frustrating you know it's not like you're always going to see an earthquake light on this fault whenever there's an earthquake right along it you know so mm -hmm. i feel like science loses credibility because they don't have singular answers for things true which is ridiculous but now yeah. my problem with you know a lot of these kind of studies are presented in a way of like hey here's an instance where there's an earthquake there's an earthquake light Here's my supporting data. Earthquake lights are real. But what about all of the thousands of earthquakes yeah. every year where nobody reports earthquake lights? Right. Or even like, other earthquakes in that same location that never had them. Right. Like, why are these rare? Um, mm -hmm. And unfortunately, that means most of the time it gets labeled as crazy. Right. Which is, we should totally have learned from this already. <laughs> that crazy right. things in science are frequently true. <laughs> now, some people say they saw earthquake lights weeks before an earthquake. I have trouble buying that. Meh. <laughs> mm -hmm. Unless it's something that, you know, was some kind of small enough quake that they couldn't feel that was still, you know, a precursor event. Maybe. Right. Maybe. Now, I do have a lot of interesting 
papers I read during working on this, um, where nobody ever showed their negative cases, which always made me mad. <laughs> they say, "Oh, look! So one of the one of the the one that actually the the credible scientists in quotes would tell you is probably the most likely thing is ultra low frequency magnetic signals. So okay. like three axis magnetometers sitting there monitoring the Earth's magnetic field. Uh-huh. There've been some pretty interesting potential precursors from that, which makes sense. Which makes sense." But everybody talks about them, and they don't talk about all the other weird things they see on a magnetometer, (laughs) that if it was their job, like a meteorologist, to sit there and watch the magnetometer (laughs) and then predict an earthquake, they would have had a lot of bad predictions. (laughs) There's no room in the literature for null hypotheses testing. Right. So the main event in that vein is the 1989 Coralitos anomaly. All right. Okay, so everybody remembers the 1989 Loma Prieta earthquake, right? Yes, yes. Freeways collapsing, Mm -hmm. Lucy Jones on TV. Yeah. Sure do. Okay. There were about a month before that, some very odd ultra-low frequency signals on the magnetometer in Coralitos, California, which was a few miles from where the fault patch that ruptured was. Three hours before the Earth. So this is, you know, large increases in anomaly size. Three hours before Loma Prieta, the magnetic field was 30 times normal. Wow. At this station. Okay. Now, the station had never seen anything like that. And it had been in operation for quite a while before that. But a very similar instrument not too far away saw nothing. No kidding. Define not too far away. Like 50 kilometers. Okay. So, the engineer in me goes, that instrument was about to have a meltdown. (laughs) Like, either that or like somebody down the power line plugged in an electric jackhammer to work on their basement. Mm -hmm. Or, you know, like some other explanation uh, especially since, so there were, that station was around, gosh, at least 10 years after this, after Loma Prieta, there's never anything else like this. Hmm. So okay. it's one time with this huge event. I mean, it's definitely statistically inter- like 30 times. Yeah. Um, but was an instrument malfunction, was an external factor based on something else going on in the area? Um, or was it real? Yeah. We we won't know. The only way we would know is to be able to repeat the Loma Prieta earthquake a few times. Right. Exactly. Which isn't that likely. (laughs) So. Mm. (laughs) That is interesting. 
as the earthquake uh, stat- statisticians will tell you that it's hard to do statistics with only one earth. Har har har. That's why everybody wants to inject stuff into faults and watch them blow. Yeah, yeah, exactly. There's some pretty interesting work going on in that area now. Mm-hmm. Uh, very reminiscent of the Rangeley experiment. Right, but exactly. with like, much better instrumentation now. Yeah, I was going to say, we've done this before. <laughs> and then you got some crazies, like our former colleague that wants to do it here in Oklahoma on the, yeah, on the faults down south, the Mears Fault. <laughs> Which would be fun, be really fun. Yeah, I mean, I would get some nice data here on that. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it wouldn't be fun to everyone that lives right there, but... There aren't that many people. We can evacuate everyone for a fault slickening experiment. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Now, interestingly enough, going back, so remember your temperature anomalies, and I said that some one of the theories is about ion movement. Right. So there is an event in 2001 in India where there is anomalous-looking infrared satellite images right over a fault that goes in a magnitude 7.9. Okay. Anomalous-looking. Hmm. It's there. It's a big apparent infrared temperature drop over the fault. And then after the earthquake happens, within 48 hours, it's gone. Hmm. Okay. This is the only case I know of anybody Uh, ever having correlated anything on an infrared satellite with an earthquake. It's interesting. It's not convincing. Okay. I just... Hmm. I would never think of that even being a possibility. You know? A yeah, I mean, so drop associated with that. That's where I'm going to come down on all of this. Is none of it's impossible. Mm-hmm. Some of it is improbable. Mm-hmm. Most all of it is uncorrelatable in a convincing way. Yeah. With our current sensing technology. Yeah, not that it isn't an actual correlation. Just exactly. Not one that we can prove right now. And you may be able to see it with our current technology, but we don't know enough to prove it. Right. I hope that I'm proven wrong sometime in the next 50 years. Yeah, no kidding. That'd be very interesting. I'm not even proven wrong. I hope that somebody can prove this in the next 50 years. Yes. I hope that your tinfoil hat comes into style. Yeah, pretty much. Uh, You know, but uh, things like tinfoil hats, fashion comes, fashion goes. (laughs) That's right. And with that, it's time for everybody's favorite segment of the show, Fun Paper Friday. Yay! Did you like that? I mean, I just, yeah. (laughs) It was a beautiful transition that went almost right over my head. Almost, yeah. Um, I just wanted to see what kind of tinfoil hat you were wearing before... I chose what one I wanted to wear. <laughs> Do you want one exactly like me, though? And not exactly, but close enough that people know that 
we're both cool. <laughs> so you want to be part of the group, but you still want to be an individual. Exactly. Yeah. I don't want us to converge and wear the same tinfoil hat. That would be embarrassing. <laughs> you know, change tinfoil hats to flannel, and that is this paper. Um, I read it and said, Daryl sent this in, right? <laughs> right. Uh, so hipsters and the cool, a game theoretic analysis of social identity trends and fads by Goldman et al. <laughs> um, there was a lot here. Um, so this is in the archive. Um, did this, has this gotten published yet? I wonder, I don't know. Yes, but it's oh, it behind did? a paywall. Okay. Uh, of course, as always. Yeah, so we do a lot of math and modeling to figure out how, using game theory, obviously, as in the title, to figure out social identity expression, basically. And the interesting thing is, like, it, there's, like, trends and popularity cycles and if you model them, shouldn't they all converge to tell you, like, what the coolest thing is? But actually, that's not what happens, right? Like, ne you, it never converges into a the coolest thing. And so they use models to figure out why, because that's the cool thing to do, right? <laughs> or as a mathematician would say, if cool is the aggregate average of the population behavior, the population uniformly distribute itself with the Euclidean distance metric around the mean. Right, but that doesn't happen. <laughs> it does not. Uh, otherwise, we would all be cool. And we can't all be cool, John. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's true. Uh, I mean, I've got the leather jacket, I've got the sunglasses, but it just doesn't work. Uh, 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 uh. Yep. You just need a bigger plane. <laughs> right. So the, the thing that, yeah, the thing that they're looking at here is why don't we converge on cool? And how can we model that? Because a lot of these game theory models that game theoreticians use make assumptions about human behavior that if you assume that, this is what happens. We converge to mean coolness. Mm -hmm. And that alone tells you that that model is garbage. That's right. <laughs> All models are wrong. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, so it performs random walks of coolness, <laughs> which I think should have been the title of the paper. <laughs> I mean, my main question is, can I use this model to say when I can wear bell bottoms? <laughs> Never. That's the output of that model run. <laughs> Preferably corduroy. Oh, but... oh. Are there any other kind? <laughs> oh, jeans, yeah. No, that's no. <laughs> flares. Only, uh, only if you wear it with a turtleneck, obviously. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Right. And um... I was I was thinking about this when okay, so it talks about how, you know, these social pressures to conform and, you know, what is your neighbor doing? And if we're all going to pick one of the examples they give, like if you're all going to pick a color to wear, you know, you have this X number of colors to choose from, but you don't want to be exactly 
like the person next to you, but you want to be close in that same color family. And I could always, I could imagine like after the fifth iteration, I would say no. And I would move entirely outside the circle and be like, I'm going to wear this pink thing instead of all these shades of blue that you guys are all wearing. <laughs> so yeah. right. turns out that's what actually happens. <laughs> well, and so the, the first model, uh, they call it better reply dynamics. <laughs> This sentence sums up why it didn't work to me. The motivation for better reply dynamics is that people are boundedly rational and adaptive. <laughs> Indubitably, that's why our government works so well. <laughs> boundedly rational and adaptive. That means willing to change your position. Neither of these are things we see currently. <laughs> Correct. Not even close. <laughs> boundedly irrational and unmovable <laughs> more like it <laughs> right uh so they go to a different model uh and instead of converging at this this nash equilibria or this mean coolness which they have a 3d graph of <laughs> uh, with expression of identity is one of the axes <laughs> i feel like the fact that you said that whole statement already shows you this can't work right. You can't graph this. <laughs> right. Um, go ahead. <laughs> so then they say, suppose people derive utility from both their conformity and their uniqueness amongst their neighbors in a social network. Then there exists a social network adjacency matrix such that no pure strategy Nash equilibrium exists and thus better reply dynamics never converge to an absorbing state. Meaning we don't agree on mean coolness. You care about how similar yet unique you are compared to the people around you, right. which I read as clicks, right? Mm -hmm. You've got hipsters, you've got rednecks, you've got, these are all, people that are i mean think about any of these groups they all are identifiable as a group because they share a lot of common characteristics but they're not all the same yeah mm -hmm. flannel but with or without sleeves <laughs> yep do you have the hat do you have piercings are you there are all these stereotypes right mm -hmm. that go with this <laughs> but each person is a unique individual so cool is not there's not one cool there are many local minima or local maxima rather of cool yes. <laughs> and it just takes one strong attractor to pop up somewhere to radically shift what's cool oh man i love it when there are all these papers trying to quantify cool <laughs> now what i didn't see that i wish i had and I don't know if it could be made for a model like this. I didn't look too deeply into the computer model they used. Uh, was the, the cyclic nature of this. Like, to oh, me, on a mm -hmm. phase plane plot, I would expect to see some kind of egg or mm -hmm. circle in, in phase space that says, yeah, this is when bell bottoms are okay again. Right, yeah. I get you. Uh, but we didn't get there. The The number of figures in this paper was actually pretty sad. Uh-huh. Did you... You didn't get the behind-the-paywall version. I wonder if there's any change in yeah. that. Yeah. 
I, I doubt it. Uh, but yes, I did not get the behind the paywall version. It was $15. So I got the archive version. Gotcha. Okay. I should take a look at that. But yeah, I doubt there's any change. Yeah. Yeah. Eh. 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 Well, I'm glad there wasn't that figure because I don't need to see you in bell bottoms is all I'm saying. I don't need to see anybody <laughs> in bell bottoms. Let's, oh, it's let's, it's coming back. No, let's move on. No, I'm gonna keep my skinny jeans because that's who I am. So, oh, <laughs> 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 uh, it wasn't. I mean, it wasn't who I was in you know seventh grade when I tried to wear bell bottoms. But <laughs> right, <laughs> I digress. Th- there are references in here back into the mid fifties, mm-hmm. which I thought was very interesting. Uh, research on fit into social groups by Ash from 55 and 56. Uh-huh. Yeah. I'm sure my mom could talk all about socias and all that other jazz, right? Greasers. and Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it is, uh, it is interesting. Yeah. So there you go. Uh, you're in your own group of similarly minded but dissimilar people right now you and a thousand of your your closest friends that you don't know that's right (laughs) and they're all converging on our coolness (laughs) 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 remember i said it could be a local minima too that's right (laughs) ouch well if you would like to continue to hear all of these wonderful rants and think that we're pretty cool and would like us to keep doing cool things. Uh, there are lots of ways that you can support the show or send in feedback. Shannon, how can they do that? Uh, get a hold of us, show at don'tpanicgeocast.com. Obviously, once every five months, we go into our <laughs> Slack chat room. We're on the Don't Panic channel of the Software Underground. Also, you can find us on Twitter at Don't Panic Geo, at Geo underscore Lehman, and at Shannon Doolin. If you would like to give us more money so we can buy more bell bottoms, we'll take that on Patreon. You can find us, patreon.com slash Don't Panic Geo. And until next week, remember, don't panic. It's not an exact science. Any opinions, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed are solely ours and do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers or funding agencies.